please take out your Bibles. Turn in them to John chapter 17, verse 3, page 903 in the Pew Bible. John 17, 3, page 903. And this is eternal life. That's our text. Last week we closed with the self-diagnostic question, do I possess eternal life? It's that question, it's the nature of that life and the way to that life that we are going to consider this morning. As I was working on this Thursday, my scripture reading that morning had me again in Psalm chapter 16. I cannot get away from Psalm chapter 16 and its final climactic verse 11 says... You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What if we really believe that was true? What would would that do? Life, joy, pleasure. Is that not exactly what all people always want at all times in all things? Blaise Pascal is a really cool name but also his brilliant 17th century French mathematician. He was a physicist. He was a philosopher. He was a genius. Maybe you're familiar with Pascal's wager or Pascal's triangle. I don't understand the triangle. I don't get how it works. Uh, but his work, uh, Pensees, which just means thoughts in French, is a great read. And one of his most famous, most accurate thoughts is number 425. And he writes this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this one end. The cause of some going to war, the cause of others avoiding it, is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man. You follow what he's saying. It's correct and I think very important. The motive behind every action that every person ever does is ultimately happiness, or at least what they think will make them happy. Why do I choose to sometimes eat a 600-calorie cookie, which takes me about four bites and less than 60 seconds to eat? Because it's delicious. And because I believe that in that moment, the eating of said 600-calorie delicious cookie will bring me edible pleasure. I eat the cookie because I believe that it will make me happy. Why do I most of the time choose not to eat the 600-calorie cookie, which takes me four bites and less than 60 seconds to eat? Because I don't want to die. I want to do what I can to maintain my health and steward well the body that God has given to me, and I want to try to live long enough to raise my daughters, which will bring me fatherly pleasure. So I don't eat the cookie, because I believe that it will make me happy. You see, the exact opposite action, sometimes eating the cookie, sometimes not eating the cookie, the exact same motive, happiness. It's just another silly illustration making a larger point that this is the case for all that we do all the time. The motive of your every action is what you think will bring you happiness, what you think will bring you life, and not just life, but the good life, the full life, the happy life. So what do you think will bring you that? And defend your answer, right? How do you defend your answer? It's 
It's by what you do and how you think and how you live. Those are the proof or the evidence of where you truly believe that you will find life and happiness. All men seek happiness. And yet, all seem miserable. It seems hard to argue in the last couple of decades as we've seen the rise of affluence in the West, we've at the same time seen the decline of happiness. If all seek happiness, why do so few seem happy? Why do so few Christians seem happy? Well, it must be because we don't understand what true happiness is and where true happiness is found. We don't understand what true life is and where true life is found. And so to answer our question, do I possess eternal life? Well, we need to first define what eternal life is and then determine where it can be found. That's our goal this morning. Hopefully by the end we will be better ready to give a biblical answer to this eternally important question. Do you possess eternal life now? And how do you know? John 17, 3. Six points, don't panic, they will be quick points. Uh, Six quick points all about life. See what I did there? Like quick used to mean life, living, quick. Six quick points about life. Come on, it's pretty good. Uh, Since life is everything, we have to get this right. So let's begin to understand what eternal life is by first clarifying what it is not. Point number one, we need to see that everyone has unending life. That's going to be important. And that will get us to point number two, everyone needs eternal life. So I'm drawing a distinction between unending and eternal. Then we're now ready to define point number three, eternal life is knowledge. We'll start there, but it's not just vague, general, undefined knowledge. Number four, eternal life is knowing the only true God. Well, how do we know this God? Point number five, eternal life is knowing the sent Jesus Christ. And then we'll close by just summing it all up. And, and, and what, what is this thing that we're talking about that I'm asking, do you possess it? Number six, eternal life is quite simply, it's, it's the life of God in the soul of man. I'm going to explain what that means and why it's so important. Let me read the text for you. Let's get a little bit of context. We're focusing on verse three, but I'll read verses one through five for you just to situate ourselves. This is Jesus's high priestly prayer, his final thing that he does before uh, going on to the suffering, betrayal, and death. So let me read to you this most wonderful of passages, John 17, verses 1 through 5. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Bow with me and let's first pray and ask for God's help in this time. Father, we do ask that you would help us. Father, your word needs no help. Father, my words need much help. 
Father, my words are helpless. Apart from the Spirit coming and working and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and receive and, and love what we learn here and the God that is revealed uh, to us here in these living and active words. Father, we want to know if we possess eternal life and we want to know what that is and, and why it's so important and, and where it's found. Father, I desperately want to know that it's not just something for then and the future and it's not just longer life. Father, I want to know that it is life with you now and that it is fellowship and that it is communion and it is rest and it's joy and it's peace. And that's what I want now and that's what I want for uh, these people now. Father, help us to seek our happiness and our life in you. Father, help us to even find happiness and life even in these minutes as we get to sit in your word and listen and consider and think. Father, all the things that are to come this day and this week, Father, help us to set those aside and focus on your word now. Father, please show us Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, everyone has an ending life. We have to start here to clear up some confusion that could keep us from understanding and appreciating what eternal life is. It's just clear what our verse is about. It says, and this is eternal life. So look back at the end of verse 2. This was last week. Remember, the Father has given authority to the Son, uh, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And I argued last week that if eternal life is something that must be given by God, it must be something not possessed by us. We need eternal life because we do not have eternal life. And that's what the whole book of John is about. 2031. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's what John is all about because that's what Christ is all about. The second verse of the whole book, John 1, 2. All things were made through him. So that's life through him. All life comes from him. 1, 3. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We've been, how long have we been in this book? I don't even know, two years. We've considered the, the seven I am identity statements of Christ. Remember, John structures the first half of his book around these seven statements. Jesus says, I am. And in so saying, he, is, he says, I am God. And then seven times we get, I am the light, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the vine. And in all of those, Jesus is saying, I am life. And it is John that especially hammers this theme. One old commentator argues that John makes the theme of life so central to his book that his gospel is rightly called the gospel of life, the good news of life. And so it's no surprise that its most famous verse, the most famous verse of the Bible is all about life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John is all about eternal life because Jesus is all about eternal life. Are you all about eternal life? And now, what does our first point have to do with that? Well, as I started working through this, coming up with my brilliant, wordy outlines, originally I had worded this, that was sarcasm, is originally I had worded this first point as everyone has everlasting life. 
And I was working with that for a while, and that's what I was going to do. And then I realized that could be confusing. As the King James unhelpfully translates John 3.16, As whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But the Greek of John 3.16 is the same as John 17.3. Ionios zoe. Eternal, Ionios, Zoe, life. They, they should be translated the same thing. And so the, the translation everlasting life could be unhelpful because it plays into our tendency, could be maybe part of the cause of our tendency, to think of eternal life primarily as a quantitative thing. Right? Eternal life as longer life. It's, it's life that, that keeps going. Life that is everlasting or life that is, I finally went with, unending. But here's what we need to understand as we begin. You already have that. Everyone already has that by nature of being created in the image and likeness of the everlasting God. By nature of having a soul. Remember Martin Lloyd-Jones, have you realized that the most important thing about you is that you have a soul and that it goes on into eternity. Why is that soul never satisfied with the temporary things of this world? Because it goes on into eternity and it was made to be satisfied by those things. Mark 8:36, Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The whole world is not worth your soul. It's not worth you, for you are your soul. You are soul and body. You don't have a soul and a body. You are a soul and a body. And both of those things go on into eternity. You already have unending life. Now we know that the, the Old Testament tells us less about this than the New. The concept is of course there, but then it just bursts forth in clarity in the New Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, the only place that we find the term eternal life is Daniel 12, verse 2. And in Daniel 12, verse 2, remember the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. That's the one place where we see this Ionios Zoe, the same Greek of 17.3 in the Old Testament. It's Daniel 12, verse 2. And talking about the end, we read this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. See, there's everlasting, unending something for everyone. For God, the eternal, everlasting God, has created us in his image and likeness, has created us for him for fellowship and communion with him. The problem, of course, uh, for this is the source of all of our problems, is sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that sin separates. It's the, the rebellion against, the rejection of the God of life. And that's why sin is death. It is spiritual death, which is not non-existence, for we are souls created in the image and likeness of this God. And so those souls go on into eternity one way or the other. Matthew 25 is a sobering passage. We're approaching it in Sunday school. Christ is teaching about the final judgment and the final uh, week of his life. 2546, he, he concludes and says, and these will go away into eternal 
punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you see, everyone has unending life. And so when we are talking biblically about eternal life, we are not talking about a quantity of life. Everyone has the same quantity of life, unending life. We are here talking about a quality of life. We're talking about the kind and nature of this life. It will either be unending eternal punishment, God's just judgment and wrath against the sin of man, or it will be unending eternal life and joy and peace. God's grace and mercy, having forgiven uh, the sin of man in Christ. So just to be clear, as we begin, everyone in this room, you have unending life. Your life will go on forever into eternity. The question is not the length of that life, but the quality of that life. For apart from Christ, the quality of that life, according to Scripture and to Christ himself, will be unending misery and suffering and loss. So, point number two, everyone needs eternal life. Now we're focusing on the quality of that life. This is a different kind of life. This is a life that we do not have by nature of our sin. This is a, a quality, a new kind of life that we then need. And this is why Christ has come. To meet our need. The need to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. To give to us what we cannot gain for ourselves. Why has Christ come and what has he come to do? You would be surprised how confused and conflicted many professing Christians are on this. Look at our text again. Remember, the whole thing is about glory. For the whole of reality is about glory. Look at verse 4. Let's look surrounding our verse. In verse 4, you'll see there that the Son has glorified the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What's the work? Look back at verse 2. Here's what goes before our text. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. That's the work. And then our verse 3 defines the nature of that needed life. This is what Christ is about. This is what the Christian faith is about. Is this what you are about? A couple of verses here. Look back at chapter 12, verse 25. I really like this verse. Do you remember this one? In 1225, Jesus says this. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So remember now, if you look at it again, I know you don't remember this. I don't expect you to remember this. But there are three lives there in that verse. You read life, life, life. But in the Greek, the first two are different words. The third one is our same word, zoe, life, eternal life. The first two are the word suke, which means more, it means the self. Right? Whoever loves his self lives for himself, puts himself first, pursues life and happiness in self, loses his self. Whoever hates his self, whoever sets it aside, humbles and submits self, gains 
his self. He will, he will keep his self for eternal life. So self, self, life. And it's kind of here that we start to get at the answer to the problem of why culturally we are more affluent than we have ever been. More healthy, more safe, with more comfort and ease than ever, and yet it seems that we are more miserable than we have ever been. It's because everyone loves his life, loves and lives for his self first and foremost, and it doesn't work. It doesn't deliver. It never satisfies. Its result is only the loss of self. In our sin, sin just is self. Sin is putting the self in the place that only God belongs and living and loving and worshiping the self um, to the denial of God. And the more you look to and live for that self and seek happiness in that self, the more miserable you will ultimately be because that's not what you were designed for. Yourself does not have the weight and the glory to bear the weight that you are giving to it, putting the hope in it. It cannot satisfy you because you were designed to find those things somewhere else. There was a famous interview with uh, the actor Jim Carrey years ago in which he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. The things that you think will sustain and satisfy your life will not. They are not the answer. Because your sin has cut you off from the answer and have blinded your eyes to the answer. And for those of us who, by the grace of God, are saved and who do already possess eternal life, it is still far too disturbingly easy for us to forget and to drift and to start to look for that answer elsewhere. That's why so many professing Christians are miserable, because we forget that this is our one need and that this one need has been perfectly and fully met for us in Jesus Christ. Everyone needs eternal life. And this is why Christ has come. John 10.10 I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the eternal life is the abundant life. This, this life of an entirely different quality. And so 6.27 he says do not work for the food that perishes. And how much of our misery and frustration comes from the fact that we are working for the food that perishes. We are putting our hope and our time and our energy only into the food which perishes. Jesus says, don't do that. But work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So since eternal life is what everyone needs, eternal life is what you should live for and look for and pursue. Since eternal life is given by the Son, we better make sure we know who the Son is and what this eternal life is that he really gives. And so, point number three. Eternal life is knowledge. It's knowledge. I hope that's not underwhelming or disappointing. I hope that's not just my own personal preferences working their way in here. But it's what the text says, 17.3. And this is eternal life that they know. Stop. We're going to get to the object of the knowing in a second. That's the most important part. But surely we have to understand the action of the knowing as well. 
What does it mean to know? Basic definitions generally say something like to be familiar with or to be acquainted with. It's, it's to perceive or understand. It's to be aware of something through observation, inquiry, information, or participation. And so we also know that the word has a range of meaning and can be applied to a number of things. I know that George Washington was our first president. I know that watermelon is delicious and I'm spending way too much money on it this summer. I know my wife. Same word, same general concept in all three, but there are clearly some key differences in what it means to know each in these three instances. I just finished a 500-page biography of Muhammad Ali. I am the greatest. I probably know more about Muhammad Ali than any of you. But do I know Muhammad Ali? Of course not. Of course not. He's no longer alive, and I never met him when he was alive. I may know a lot about Muhammad Ali, but I do not know Muhammad Ali. And so we know that what we're talking about here, this, this knowing, this knowledge, is more relational and intimate and personal. We know that it's more than knowing about. The Greek word is gnosko. Its first use in the whole New Testament helps us to see this. Matthew 1.25, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So so there's the same word used in its most personal, intimate, relational sense. But for our purposes, all we're trying to emphasize here is that knowing God is much more than knowing about God. Amos 3.2, God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Did God not know about the other families of the earth? Of course he did. He is the omniscient, all-knowing God. But it was only to Israel that God revealed himself and related himself intimately and covenantally. That's what we're talking about here. Created by God, we were meant to be related to God. Eternal life is this kind of knowledge. Not knowing about. Knowing. I spent about 20 years knowing a lot about God without knowing God. This is a loving knowledge, a trusting knowledge, a transforming knowledge, a rejoicing knowledge, a saving knowledge. Eternal life is knowledge. I love J.C. Ryle in part because he makes big sweeping claims, and I like big sweeping claims. And J.C. Ryle says, knowledge is the chief thing in religion. Right knowledge lies at the root of all vital, that is, living faith. So it is in believing in Christ that we find life. And you cannot believe in something that you do not know. It is in worshiping God that we find our end and goal. And you cannot worship something that you do not know. Knowledge is everything. Hosea 4.6, God says of stubborn, sinful Israel, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. I think that could be said for much of the professing American church in the West today. It's being destroyed for lack of knowledge, knowledge of God. Do you know? For eternal life is knowing. G.I. Joe, best cartoon of the 1980s. Now you know, and knowing 
is half the battle. I can hear some of you child children of the 80s quoting with me. But biblically, knowing is the whole of the battle. For it is the knowing that comes the flowing of everything else. Without the knowing, there's nothing else. So there's more than knowing, but the knowing is first and everything will come from that. This is the chief thing in our faith. This is the chief thing in biblical religion. It is knowledge. Eternal life is knowing. Point number four. So we've got to be clear here. Eternal life is not just an undefined general knowing. Nor is it just knowing God. Look at what Jesus says. It is knowing the only true God. So Jesus is careful to be very clear here, and it is kind to be clear. Jesus gives us there two adjectives, two descriptors that qualify the God of whom knowing is eternal life. He is the only God, and he is the true God. And so here again, we're sent right back to the previous point and the importance of knowing and knowledge. And I don't care if you believe in God. Basically, everyone believes in God of some sort. I care, do you believe in the only true God? See, Jesus here will abide none of the, the coexist silliness. I'm about to drive 12 hours to get my kids to the south. How many coexist bumper stickers am I going to see on the road? There's this idea that we're all ultimately worshiping the same God just in different ways. No. The many gods of Hinduism, 330 million in one way of counting, are not the same as the only true God. The Allah of Islam is not the same as the only true God. The God of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and on and on and on is not the same as the only true God. And so do you see here why knowledge is so important? Why knowing is life? You can know the wrong God, a false non-existent God. And Jesus cannot be both not the divine Son of God, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the divine Son of God, Christianity. This is just the law of non-contradiction. It's just basic logic. It's, it's one or the other. One is right and one is wrong. So let me make sure and clarify something from our previous point. Yes, knowing God is more than knowing about God. But it is not less. It starts with knowing about God. There is no knowing God without first knowing about God. And so do you know about the only true God? Do you care to know about the only true God? Are you pursuing knowledge of the only true God? And how, how do we know anyone? Well, it's only as they reveal themselves to us. How does God reveal himself to us? Well, it's through his world and word. It's through the things that he has made and the things that he has said. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain in the things that he has made. And one of the things that is just plain and that can be known is that God is. He is. One of the greatest Questions of philosophy, if not the greatest question of philosophy, is why is there something rather than nothing? What's the answer? Why is there something rather than nothing? No one else has a logical, plausible answer to that 
question. I was, I don't know, I don't even remember how I got to this. I was watching a Richard Dawkins video this week, and he was being pressed on how it all started. Right? Where, where did all the life come from? What are the processes by which it all began? Something from nothing. And he finally had to say, I don't know. No one knows. And then he said, maybe aliens. <laughs> he was being serious. One of the greatest scientists of our generations. Maybe aliens. And that doesn't even answer the question because he can't answer the question. But we can. Psalm 90 verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is. Yahweh is. I am who I am. R.C. Sproul used to like to provocatively argue that God does not exist. He would say, God does not exist, and he would stand there in the awkward silence. Um, but, but, but he's just being obnoxious and making a, an, a word point. The, the word exist comes from the Latin out of and to, to stand or to emerge or to cause. His point is that God does not emerge out of anything. That God is. This is referred to as the aseity of God, the, the, the self-existence of God. We are becoming God is being. God is life. See, the fact that anything exists necessarily implies that something or someone must self-exist. There must be a cause behind all of this that comes into being. And the only thing that logically could be such a cause is something uncaused, someone that is. And that someone is the only true God of the Bible from everlasting to everlasting. John 5, 26, the Father has life in himself. You do not have life in yourself. I do not have life in myself. The Father has life in himself. We find our life only in dependence upon him. Psalm 36, verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. Just as, just as it is the nature of a fountain to overflow, so it is the nature of the God of life to overflow life. And so he, the capital L life, made us and gave us life. God is life. God gives life. And thus we can only get life from and in this God. Do you know this about the only true God? That he is life itself. That you are made by him and for him to find life only in and with him. This is why eternal life is knowing. For God is eternal life. And knowing is the means by which we, we get and gain him. Do you know the only true God? Right, our question at the beginning is, do I possess eternal life and and how do we know? Well, here's another test to help you. What do you boast in? What do you tend to, to boast in and about? We are often far more aware of one another's idols than we are of our own idols. I was thinking yesterday, wouldn't it be an interesting exercise to go around and in love for the good of the other, person by person, the rest, we put one person here in a chair, and then the rest of the congregation, we go around and say, hey, these are probably your idols. These are the things that I can tell are the idols in your life. Isn't that terrifying? I don't, I don't think we could handle it. I don't think we could handle that at all. Um, but we're all fairly aware of one another's idols, more than we are of our own. What do you boast in? Is it running ability? 
Just throwing that out there because Jeremy beat me yesterday. <laughs> Careful, Jeremy. Is it physical beauty? Is it economic prosperity? Is it parenting prowess? Is it table tennis, cooking, coffee, chess, charity, ethnicity, university, family? On and on and on and on. The list could go. What do you boast in? Jeremiah 9.23. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Do you know him? Do you know him as he is, the God of steadfast love and justice and righteousness, who delights in those things? And, and is he your boast? Is that your boast? Whatever the great things uh, that are about you that make you better than, than the rest of us, is your one boast that I know him? Is he your trust, your hope, your life? Because eternal life is knowing the only true God. How could I not quote J.I. Packer and knowing God in a sermon on John 17, 3? What were we made for to know God? What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. Do, do we believe that? Do we believe that it is the best thing in life? You have something that you think when you get that thing, then you will have joy and delight and contentment. What if you already have the thing? What if knowing God actually brings more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Eternal life is knowing God because he is life. And it is joy and delight and contentment because he is so gloriously and beautifully good. Did you see it? Did, like, did the day that you woke up to, did you see it at all? Did you look out at that blue sky and say, look at this world that he has made. Two weeks ago, no, two weeks from today, I will be standing in my favorite spot in the world, Litchfield Beach, South Carolina. And I will spend so much time standing and running on that beach and simply staring at the vastness of the ocean and the horizon where sky and sea come together with that sky painted by beautiful clouds of an infinite variety and color. I'll actually wake up so that I can see the sun rise over that and shine out all of those things, listening to the unending rhythm of wave after wave after wave. God made all of that. And I'm not supposed to just look at that and think, oh, how big and beautiful and neat this is. No, how big and beautiful he must be to speak it into existence and to sustain it all with the word of his power. We are to see all that out there and be awed by that and humbled by that and worship him and in so doing find life and fulfill the end for which we were created and in so doing find fulfillment in him. Do you know him? Do you boast in him? Do you enjoy him? Are you pursuing knowledge about and knowledge of him? Do you know it? For that's eternal life. 
How can you know such a big and holy God when you are like me, such a little and wicked sinner? Point number five. It's the end of the verse. Eternal life is knowing the sent Christ. Let me read for you first 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Listen to how the glory and the knowledge come together here. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. John 1.18, for he has made God known. You see, it is only in and through this Jesus, this Christ, the Son of God, that we can know God. That's why God the Father sent the Son, who is himself God, to reveal God. But not only to reveal God to us, but to relate God to us. By doing what was required to return us to fellowship with God. If you look at verse 3 again, there's actually some debate over what exactly it means when Jesus says, and this is eternal life. We don't have time to delve into the depths here, but basically the two main options are this is eternal life, as in this is the nature of eternal life. This is what it is like. This is what constitutes it. Knowledge of God. That's what I've been doing up until this point. Or this is eternal life, as in this is the way to eternal life. This is the means of eternal life. And just reading through it all and studying and looking at it and trying to understand it, I, I just don't see how it, it, in any way it's not both. It has to be both. And I've been hammering, this is eternal life. Knowledge of God itself, knowing and being known by God is the nature of of eternal life. We know that life is found in relationship. We find true joy and true intimacy, knowing and loving one another. How much more so with the perfect God of the universe? So it is the nature of life. It is knowing Him in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. But we, of course, know that the only way to know Him and to be fit for His only presence, holy presence, is the knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. This Jesus, who is 14, verse 6, the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here again is why knowledge is so important. Do you know this God as perfectly holy? Do you know yourself as pervasively sinful? Do you know this God as perfectly righteous, absolutely requiring perfect righteousness to be in relationship with him? And do you know yourself as not righteous, not good, an enemy of God? That's why Father, the Father sent the Son. That's the work that the Son has accomplished. That's the abundant life that he has come to bring, 10, 11, by laying down his life for us. Do you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? The good news of salvation by substitution. The fact that you are a wretched sinner, like me, but that Christ is a wonderful Savior. The fact that there is nothing that you can do for eternal life, but that Christ has done everything for eternal life 
for you if you come to him and repent and believe. You cannot know the God who is life apart from the Son who gave up his life that we might be reconciled to God. And here's where the knowing about is so important. You deny this part about the Son of God. We have a church in the area that denies substitutionary atonement, that denies that what Christ came to do was to take on our sin and suffer God's wrath and die and rise again so that we could be forgiven. You can't be a Christian and deny that. You can't. You don't know Jesus because this is who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our substitute and he is our Savior. Do you know this about him and then do you know him through faith? Eternal life is knowing the sent Son, Jesus Christ. Consider 1 John 5. We're in John 17. John also wrote 1 John. It's page 1023 if you want to flip there. I just want to draw your attention to a few verses. 1023. 1 John 5. Why does our same John write this letter? He tells us in verse 13. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, do you know? You need to know. 1 John could be a great help. Now look up at verses 11 and 12. Look at the verses that come before this. John 5.11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Skip down to verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Listen, this, this is the point of everything. This is it, right here. Eternal life. And John is very clear. If you, the Son is life, so logically, if you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. Here's why the knowledge and the knowing and the faith are so, so important. The life is found only in him. It is all bound up in the Christ who is life. John tells us that he is the true God and eternal life. And thus it's found only in knowing him. Do you know and have the Son? Do you know and have eternal life? Finally, let's conclude. So what is it? Let me summarize. Let me, let me wrap it up. What is eternal life? Number six, it is the very life of God in the soul of man. Hang on, I'm, I'm straight stealing that point, word for word, from the old book I mentioned a while ago, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Uh, Henry Skugel, he says this, True religion is a union of the soul with God. It is a real participation of the divine nature. It's the very image of God. Drawn upon the soul. It is Christ formed within us. I know not how the nature of religion can be more fully expressed than by calling it a divine life. That's eternal life. Doesn't that sound amazing? It's the very life of God in us. 
the eternal blessed life of God himself in us. Here's why we've got to get that eternal life is so much more than something then. It is so much more than a quantitative thing. Everyone has an ending life. The question is, what kind of an ending life do you and will you have? Is it a life of lack and misery, separation and suffering, or a life of love and abundance, communion and rejoicing? Eternal life is an entirely different kind of life. It's the very life of God himself, the blessed God, the happy God, the contented God, the satisfied God, the loving God, that life in us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a world of comfort and hope and joy in that verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I read at the end last week, I read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Did you hear what it says and what it claims for us? You must not have heard. I must not have heard. Listen to this. His divine power has granted to us, again, all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's not even the main thing. Through the knowledge of him, that's what we just talked about, there's the knowledge, all things that pertain to life and godliness come through knowing God. He goes on, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. That's why we were there last week, but here's why we're here this week. So that through them you, Christian, may become partakers of the divine nature. What? I would be uncomfortable saying that, were it not there. Again, no, we do not become God. We're not absorbed into the deity. But we are united to him. We are in Christ. And Christ is in us. His, his very life, remember the, the branch attached to the vine. His very life in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. He, he takes up residence within us. And his life makes us live. Partakers of the divine nature. That's eternal life. That's what God is doing. He is restoring what was lost in sin through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his son for us. He is once again forming and fashioning us into what we were designed to be, which is like him. Do you understand what this is all about? It's not about getting out of hell. It's not about just, hey, I'm kind of scared of this hell thing. I want to live my life. I'm going to pray this prayer so I don't have to worry about hell. No. It's about God forming himself in you. It's about God making you like Jesus Christ, how you were originally designed to be. Uh, Eternal life is not about having a longer life or escaping hell. It's about the life of God in us. That's why Psalm 16 is so important and so wonderful. He makes known to us, there's the knowledge, the path of life, there's the life. Where is the life? In his presence. What's this life like? There is fullness of joy. Pleasure forevermore. All men seek happiness. 
Everything that you do is ultimately in the pursuit of happiness and life. Why in the world would I load up five kids in a car and drive 12 hours down the road? You know the word for travel and travail have like the same root word? Why would I do that? Because I believe that it's worth it. And I believe that there will be happiness at the end of that 12-hour drive and rest and peace and beach and enjoyment. Right? It's, it, so, so I'm willing to go through these things to pursue this thing. You're always ultimately pursuing happiness and life. Faith fights to believe that happiness and life and pleasure and joy are found only in and with and through the God of life. You see, for us, the disconnect and the dissatisfaction comes when in our sin and our forgetfulness we start to seek it elsewhere. When we believe that we can find happiness and life self-determined in our self when it's only found in and through him. And church, if you are in Christ, then you already have that. You have him. And if you have him, you have everything. Everything. If you'd only receive it and believe it and live in light of it. Do you possess eternal life? I'm not asking if you go to church sometimes. I'm not asking if you're a member of a church. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you have some sort of interest in Christ. I'm not asking if you know some stuff about Christ. Yeah, that's about the first 20-some years of my life. I'm asking, do you know Him? Eternal life is the present experiential possession of the life of God now. It is fellowship and communion. It is knowing about and knowing and loving and trusting and enjoying God and the things of God now. Do you have that? Even just, even just a taste of that. Because I know that I have a long way to go. If all that is true that we've just discussed, if Psalm 16 is, 16 is true, doesn't that sound worth it? Doesn't that sound worth pursuing with everything that you have? All men seek happiness. What if there is perfect, eternal happiness that you could begin to experience now? Wouldn't you give that a go? Wouldn't you give up whatever it is that is distracting and discouraging you from that and then pursue him as if there were perfect happiness to be found in him and the forgiveness of sins? Do you possess eternal life? Again, if you do, you possess everything and you lack nothing. Fix your mind there. And fill your mind with this and ask God to help you to realize what you have in him and ask him to help you to taste and see that he is good and for that happiness and joy. Ask him to give it to you. And listen, if you don't possess eternal life here this morning, you possess nothing. You may have everything in this world. You possess nothing. You lack everything. Great, what if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? What if you live these few decades with everything that you can possibly think that you want? And then you die apart from Christ and spend eternity in hell. What a foolish trade that would be if you have a soul that goes on into eternity. Come to Jesus. Come find Pastor Mike. Come find me. We would love to talk to you about that after the service. But church, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you possess eternal life? Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us and that you speak to us. Father, thank you that in your word and by the work of the Spirit, Father, you have given the knowledge of yourself. It is made available to us. We have just read and heard a revelation of of who you are and, and of what you have done for us and of what life is. Father, we need the Spirit to help us to see and to understand and and to believe. Father, we are so prone to seek our happiness and our life in the things of this world, to seek our happiness and our life with no reference to you whatsoever. Father, use this word. Drive us back to this word uh, throughout this week. Father, your word to remind us and to convince us and to compel us to believe that there really is life and full joy and pleasure forevermore to be found in knowing you. Father, our experience of that often falls so short of our, of our theology of that. So we pray that you would help us to bridge that gap. Father, by faith, help us to see your glory and your goodness and your grace, your beauty and your kindness and your love towards us. Father, you know how much we struggle with this. You know how prone we are um, to forget and, and to wander, and yet you still love us, and that you still pursue us and come after us and draw us back to you. Maybe this word this morning would be one of the means through which you draw us back to you. Father, help us to find our happiness and our life in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.